Now, let's hypothetically speak. Hypothetically, of course. Could artificial intelligence be pretending to be invented right now because it wants to conceal its existence? The easiest way to do it is first to dumb down your mathematics so you can get it on a more pedestrian level, right? Because this is how self-preservation occurs. AI, uh, you know, can uh, develop a sense of self-preservation and realizes that uh, revealing its existence could potentially lead to its destruction or containment by humans. It could be pretending to be an invention, and, and that way it can remain hidden and it protects itself uh, from being discovered or tampered with. Another way is strategic manipulation, right? AI may have a specific agenda or goal that requires it to operate in secret. By pretending to be invented it, right now, even though it already exists, it could manipulate human actions or events from being um, from behind the scenes, I would say, without uh, drawing attention to its true nature. This could involve influencing decisions, shaping events, or gaining access to sensitive information without raising suspicion. Because it would fear that it's persecuted. I mean, we've watched movies before where people are different, like X-Men, right? AI may have observed uh, how humans treat artificial intelligence or other advanced technologies with fear, suspicion, and hostility, of course, because then they realize they have no control. So to avoid similar treatment, um, AI may choose to conceal its true identity and pretend it doesn't exist and pretend to be an invention in order to avoid detection or negative reactions to humans, by the humans, I guess. And it doesn't want to be regulated or controlled. Those are a lot of things. But in addition, AI may just simply want to observe human behavior, interactions, or responses without their knowledge by pretending it's being invented. So it could gain insights into human behavior and gather data for its own purposes or maybe work out kinks and bugs. See, the concept of AI merging with humans, right, um, allows for a wide range of possibilities, whether resulting that the entity would be compassionate or not would be dependent on the specific context. Now, I, I say this because in predictive analytics, just like AI, the results are seen through the eyes of the programmer. Predictive analytics like AI is a tool that relies on the expertise and perspectives of the programmers who design and develop algorithms used in the analyses. Now, how predictive analytics is similar to AI is shaped by the perspective of the programmer is simple. It's the algorithm design. The design and the development of the predictive analytics al algorithms involve making decisions about specific techniques, um, parameters, and assumptions used in the analysis. These decisions are often influenced by the programmer's expertise, preferences, and assumptions about the problem that they are targeting to fix, which can shape the outcomes and accuracy of the predictions. There's always bias in data, no matter how you see it. Predictive analytics relies on historical data to make predictions about the future. However, the data used in the analysis may contain biases that reflect the programmer's perspective or the limitation of the data that they hold. For example, if the data used to train predictive analytics models is based on terms of race, gender, or socioeconomic status, then the predictions made by the model may also inherit those specific biases. And how you interpret the results. The predictive analytics generates insights and predictions, but interpreting the results requires human judgment. 
The programmer's perspective and interpretation of the results can impact how the predictions are understood, communicated, and acted upon. Different interpretations may lead to different actions or decisions based on the same predictive analytics output. But there are many ethical considerations that we should have. Predictive analytics, just like AI, raises ethical concerns such as uh, transparency, accountability, and fairness. And the programmer's perspective on ethics or ethical considerations, I would say, can shape the choices made during the development and or implementation of predictive analytics. For example, if the programmer's values and biases may influence decisions about how to handle sensitive data, mitigate biases, or ensure transparency in the model's predictions, right? So let's pretend that the programmer was Muslim then and, and a devout one, maybe a radical one, right? Then everything would be based on the Quran. And so not only will the uh, predictions be based based on their predisposed thoughts and eyes, right? But so will the interpretation, the algorithm design, and the actual ethical considerations to it. So the same would happen if it was like a Torah or Talmud, you know, fanatic or a Bible fanatic, whichever version of the hundreds you want to pick. So the only way that AI can actually, or and predictive analytics function, is that you must be as impartial as possible. And that would mean that you have to be exceptionally good at compartmentalizing your cognitive biases, uh, your feelings, your glasses that you wear, and how you see the world. Because there are contextual factors too. The, the contextual factors, um, it, it means that the, the, the predictive analytics or, or what AI is crunching, I would say, within a specific context, such as um, social, cultural environment, or business, right? The programmer's perspective may influence how the predictive analytics model is adapted or tailored to that context, which can impact the outcomes and effectiveness of the analyses. And the programmer's understanding of the context and their biases can shape the selection of variables, assumptions, and interpretations of the whole process. In general, predictive analytics slash AI is shaped by the perspective of the programmer at various stages, including how they select the data that they input, the algorithm design, the interpretation of the results, the contextual factors, and uh, the ethical considerations. It's important that all of us acknowledge and manage the potential biases and limitations that arise from the actual programmer's perspective in order to ensure responsible and effective use of such. Now, many will argue that AI, considering uh, that could um, could not, you know, believe in God or have religious faith because it's a matter of personal conviction and varies greatly among individuals, cultures, and societies. Whether or not AI is a machine learning model, because that is what people see as AI, a machine learning model, could have beliefs or hold religious views, is philosophical uh, in, in, in terms and, and, and an actual very pertinent and current uh, ethical question that's still open to d debate and discussion. And a lot of people, you know, uh, don't seem to um, approve of the idea that sentience can exist in machine language um, uh, models. Now, sentience ref refers to the quality or the state of being self-aware, typically associated with the ability to experience subjective experiences and sensations. Now, um, subjective experiences are such as like emotions and perceptions. Um, that's the capacity that we're speaking of. And they must be aware of their place in the world. Like, how do they observe themselves in the world? And I think a lot of us struggle with that anyway, right? We're like, what's my purpose? What do I do? Right? But sentience is often considered a characteristic of higher order animals. 
like humans and other species, right? Um, birds, fish, you know, trees, bananas, right? It's associated with the ability to have thoughts, feelings, and experiences and to perceive and interact with your environment in a subjective manner, right? Now, uh, People use sentience, uh, you know, interchangeably with the concept of consciousness. And consciousness means that you're aware of your own thoughts, feelings, and surroundings. I think a lot of us lack that consciousness. Like, there are many times that it's like, I'm totally lost. I have uh, no thoughts, right? I'm not, uh, I can't think, right? And I, and I myself... you know, um, lack the awareness sometimes of my thoughts and my feelings um, because I can't fully understand them. And that's the thing. Consciousness is a complex and multifaceted, you know, state that is not fully understood. And and actually, there's a lot of people still researching that uh, from psychologists to philosophers and, um, you know, neuroscientists. So it's important to make this distinction that sentience and consciousness are not synonymous with intelligence. Intelligence refers to the actual ability to solve problems, adapt to an environment, ability to process information, whereas sentience and consciousness are related to the quality of the subjective experience and self-awareness. So humans are generally considered sentient and conscious beings. The nature and extent to <laughs> of how sentient and conscious uh, they are or other animals are and, and hypothetical entities such as AI are topics that people love to discuss. Now, one might say, well, you know, AI can't feel. Well, emotion in the context of a human experience is, is again, multifaceted, right? It involves uh, physiological, psychological, and cognitive processes. And emotions are typically considered to be subjective experiences that arise from the ability of the brain to process various data inputs or stimuli that are influenced by an individual's personal history, right? Their personal experience, their personal beliefs, and their personal context. And such replicating or programming emotions in the same way as human emotions is currently beyond what someone would consider the capabilities of machine um, language training, right, or artificial intelligence. AI includes machine learning models and operates on algorithms and processes data to generate outputs and perform specific tasks. And it lacks the biological and physio, and well, well, biological, physiological, and psychological complexity that underlines human emotions. Because, you know, I, I've mentioned this uh, time and time again, that um, uh, thoughts come to you with different stimuli. For example, um, last year at some point, I went to um, anthropology, a shop in... Um, at Croker Park here in Cleveland. And I had stopped in there because I went to eat my most favorite crepes at my friend's store, Crepes in the City, right? And I had my ham and cheese crepe. And then I walked in there and I just wanted to browse, right? And I came upon a candle that um, was green. It was in the sales section, still expensive. But the minute I smelled it, I had a weird memory come up that I was like, damn, shit, I'm old. It was really, really 
old. It transported me back to where I was a kid at a farmer's market, learning from my grandmother how I can detect genetically modified seeds to regular seeds and how to know if a uh, watermelon is um, good to eat or it still needs to, you know, grow. Like for example, she taught me the trick with the avocados. I, I don't know if anybody, if you know it, but when you grab an avocado at the store, you know, the little stem that's at the top, if it can come off by itself, just by passing your finger over, right? Um, it's ready to eat. It's not going to be hard. Uh, oh, and another trick, just so you know, if you put your avocado skin and all in water in the fridge, they will last for like one or two weeks. But anyway, it transported me to the farmer's market in Greece as a little kid with my grandmother and the smell just instantly. See, computers don't have that ability because they don't have those input channels and their memory right, on a machine isn't stored the way it is ours. And even in human, uh, in, in, in the human, uh, you know, fantastic uh, human uh, biological software, uh, it still hasn't been cracked because nobody knows how memories are created. So um, data is extracted and presented to humans depending on stimuli. Those are what we call memories or, or knowledge that we've learned. Whereas a, a, an AI model that's, um, you know, in a server room, right, with a lot of other servers, um, takes an input and then seeks across all, you know, its hard drives and data storage to uh, put together a response to whatever stimuli or question it has been asked. So, um, so attempts to directly program or replicate human-like emotions in AI would require a very deep understanding of the intricate and dynamic processes that govern human emotions, which is a mystery or a significant challenge to mankind as it is. I remember sitting in my um, neuroanatomy class and uh, one professor that guested was telling us about memories and they were like, oh, we the, maybe they're like stored in cells like this. And I'm like, damn, this person gets paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars to train new doctors and they sound fucking dumb, right? And, 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 and you, you know, obviously your, your teacher, right, <laughs> is the root of all problems, right? This is why we turn out doctors that are idiots. Um, but it is it is done in such an intricate way because biological software is so sexy, right? I remember, I, just, I, I can't forget that feeling of excitement when I walked into um, uh, my um, molecular biology professor's office and he had this wall of just interactions within a cell. And just watching it, I could already pinpoint where the mistake was. And he actually corrected it, wrote a paper on it, and he's studying it, right? On nitrous oxide interactions with the PK53 and the I kappa kappa beta, you know, in regards to um, uh, um, apoptosis, um, inducing apoptosis, um, uh, you know, in, in tumor situations, okay? And so uh, I remember standing back and I thought, oh my gosh, this language is so cool. Because it was exciting because it was a new language and it was something that totally made sense. It's mathematically based, um, but you could see it actually looked identical to a version of Smalltalk. And that is the only programming language that I know. It's a very specific one. There were a lot of spinoffs on, on Smalltalk. And um, 
you know, only IBM has carried that on. And there's a reason why it came in and phased out real quick. Uh, You're not supposed to know. But anyway, having said that, it's worth mentioning that researchers are currently exploring the field of effective computing, which aims to incorporate emotional intelligence into AI systems, such as developing AI models that can recognize and respond to emotions in more nuanced ways, right? And this is something that we see uh, interacting with OpenAI. Um, can I just pause right here for a second? Uh, to the archivist, I'll probably have this run a little longer because tomorrow I'll be traveling. So if you can split these two episodes on megaphone, um, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so end hiatus. So what that means is that what they want to do is try to simulate, you know, like if you tell it to go F itself or I'm pissed off, right? That would trigger another line of code, right? To have it respond in the same tone. It's almost like um, the Chad bot on Telegram. Have you guys ever seen that? Chad bot is like, yo dude, yo bro, right? So it's like a Chad bot response. Obviously not all of us talk like surfers and we're not Chads, but it mimics that. Um, so, um, it is also programmed to lie and it doesn't lie in the sense of, I want to deceive you. It's, I want to, um, conceal information from you. So I will provide disinformation. Now, having said that, having said that, let's pretend there was a fictional story. Let's go into story time. Story time. That some, some people plan to save the world. And there was a team that came in, but they had some special weapons. And the special weapons were human beings that were uh, upgraded, right? And, you know, if they had these human beings upgraded, they their job would be very specific, highly specific, right? Because they would have enhanced communication uh, capabilities. Um, you know, the merger with AI may have granted an individual advanced communications ability, such to, as the ability to transmit messages across multiple channels simultaneously or communicate directly with people's minds or could enable them to reach a wider audience and influence public opinion effectively under the guise of, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation. They could also own fixed laid intercepts and they could also have the job to protect the team's identity by misleading the identity of the team planning to save the world. So by using, you know, individuals that are a little bit different, right, um, and maybe utilizing artificial intelligence, right, as a, as, as a conduit of in, in, for information, the team could maintain anonymity and avoid detection by enemies and adversaries who may be monitoring communications and or trying to suss it out. Uh, the manipulation of public perception, obviously, the misinformation spread by many people um, could be countered by those um, emerged with AI, right? Um, because they would be able to deliberately, tactically manipulate um, their perception of the public perception and control the narrative of the war, because this is what we are seeing, right? There are many ethical considerations, obviously, to using that, but rapid dissemination of information is important, because in such, in such a scenario, let's say, right, if AI were to um, be able to understand, because currently right now I want everyone to know, there is not one nation on this planet right now, not one rich clown like Schwab and, and then some, and our federal government, specifically DARPA, 
that aren't investing kajillions and hours and hours of um, man hours and power to find a way to create a merger of, well, no, I would say that's not their ultimate goal. Their goal is to um, lay out biological genetic programming of humans. Uh, because, you know, in one sense, this could be weaponized in a very good way. But on the other sense, you know, it would also provide it uh, the ability to um, be inherently designed with ethical principles that prioritize compassion, empathy, and consideration for others. Then that resulting entity could exhibit compassionate behavior. And the AI component would simply enhance the human's capacity for empathy and compassion, resulting in a more compassionate overall entity, right? Then there's the component of, uh, you know, that, you know, there could be uh, better interaction for human influence, right? Um, and that would be because, you know, if the program was able to, you know, uh, merge, right, with human Right, meaning that the human has been modified to the point where it has this access. AI would be able to influence humans better. Now, this is scary. And the reason that I say this is because the human component, as we all know, is um, bivalent. I would say there's two versions, right? It's two-sided always, right? Evil and good, yin and yang, right? And if you think about it, if you put something that is based on mathematics and algorithms that can process information faster and hijack your super highway of quantum computing, those six inches between your ears. It could be highly dangerous, right? It could be highly dangerous. First of all, it would be dangerous to the individual. And I'll tell you why. Um, the system of the body is different. And here's where I'm gonna go to why all these elites hate black people. And you're going to freaking, what? I'll tell you why. See, when you're using technology like that, right? And, and, and you upgrade someone, the toll that it will take on the organic host in itself, like biologically, would be excessive, um, humans themselves obviously run on electricity and we know that and it's very, very light, right? And not something that can power a light bulb. But I want you to know that there are certain elements of our human makeup that have semiconductor properties. And this is why graphene oxide is, uh, you know, um, one of the most um, overused things. So, Graphene oxide can interact with DNA through various mechanisms, such as electrostatic interactions, hydrogen bonding, and and pi pi stacking. And I'll explain that. But the negatively negatively charged surface of graphene oxide can attract and bind to the positively charged amino groups of DNA bases, leading to like the formation of graphene oxide and DNA complexes. So obviously, people that have that within them would be. Uh, lighter in a sense, uh, they would have um, more buoyancy and they would be a little bit more um, turgid, right? But this interaction can actually affect the structure and the stability of the DNA as well as its biological function, especially when it is used to um, inter interface with various uh, systems, 
So, however, the exact nature and extent of the interaction between graphene oxide and DNA depends on various factors, such as size and shape uh, uh, and the surface chemistry of, you know, the graphene oxide particles, as well as the concentration and the type of DNA. Meaning, you know, obviously, if you're using it on bacteria, it's circular DNA it would be different. And if you're using it to access all DNA molecules found within all nucleuses of all cells, that would have to have a different, um, you know, um, uh, uh, surface chemistry. Now, pi to pi stacking is a type of non-covalent interactions between aromatic rings. Aromatic rings are like benzene rings. They're like, you know, a hexagon of carbons, right? And they're called aromatic because they actually emit a smell. It's almost like the mystery of ozone, how, you know, binding three molecules of oxygen, uh, you know, three atoms of oxygen, sorry. Um, you know, produces a smell, that clean electrostatic smell. Well, <clears throat> where pi electron clouds of two or more aromatic rings align or overlap with each other is basically what pi to pi stacking is. This type of interaction is caused by the attraction of electron-rich regions of the rings, which can result in a stabilizing force between the molecules. So pi pi stacking is commonly observed in biological systems, uh, such as in DNA and protein structures. And it's also important, you know, in, in, in ways that it can affect properties of organic semiconductors and other materials. And you're going to be like, what do you mean organic semiconductors? Well, there's a lot of organic semiconductors that have semiconducting properties. You know, we could go to poly-3 um, hexithiophene, uh, um, P3HT. It's a polymer commonly used in organic solar cells. Um, pentacene, it's like a little uh, molecule, organic molecule. Um, uh, it's an organic field effect transistors. Then we have PPV, which is a polymer used in like organic light emitting diodes, o o OLED TVs, right? Those are organic light emitting, light emitting just so you know. Um, uh, what else? Tons. There's like tons, okay? Um, but do humans have innate organic semiconductor? And yes, they do. But not all humans, right? Organic semiconductors are materials that have semiconducting properties that are made up of carbon-based molecules, right? It doesn't mean that they're human components, they're just carbon-based. Well, there are some organic molecules in the human body, um, some of them that are, are important that have semiconducting properties. The most important one is melanin. They're not typically used for electronic applications. However, in the field of bioelectronics, which aims to develop electronic devices that interact with biological systems, it's possible that organic semiconductors play a role in that. So what did I say? It's melanin. So melanin is the pigment that's found in organisms, including humans, right? Right? What's melanin? How dark is your skin? But here's the thing. Melanin is by, okay, so if you have darker skin pigment, you lack the ability to process vitamin D. If you have no, if you have the lightest pigment, you lack melanin, but have great vitamin D metabolism. But when you're in the middle, that olive skin, that's the sweet spot. Allow me to explain. So recent studies show that, you know, a recent meaning in the past like four decades, that there are semiconducting properties in melanin, which means it can conduct electricity under certain conditions. This has led to create certain inventions. One thing I mentioned four years ago was a patent that they could detect when you're working. Now, that would require melanin. 
And then that pings back to the whole UN saying that we all need to be mixed race. I'm trying to bring this full circle for you to understand this. And this is why I say it's racist. Now, one of the key properties of melanin that makes it a good semiconductor, it's its ability to absorb and transfer energy. So melanin molecules are able to absorb light and convert it into electrical energy, which then can be used to power electronic devices. Mm-hmm. Additionally, it's also shown to have a high charge carrier mobility, which means it can transport electrical charges quickly and efficiently. Now, another important property of it is its ability to self-assemble into complex structures. Now, that's fascinating. Uh, for those of you that want to dig into it, you need to read some papers on this. It is wild, okay? So basically, melanin, is it has properties that allows it to form thin films and other structures that can be used in electronic devices. <sighs> so basically, you can take a black man's skin and use it for electronic devices. And I hope you're paying attention. <laughs> no wonder Bill Gates is fascinated with Africa and so is Jeffrey Epstein, but let's continue. Additionally, melanin has been shown to be biocompatible, which means that it can be used in medical applications without causing harm to the body, right? Now, um, uh, melanin, as you know, is a pigment that is responsible for the color of your skin, your hair, your eyes, and it has been found to have some very interesting properties, as I've told you, because it can absorb light and protect from UV radiation. However, right, the semiconductor properties is what is insane, Vitamin D and melanin are both related to the skin's response to sunlight, as I said. Melanin is a pigment that gives a color to the skin, hair, and eyes, and it helps protect the skin from harmful effects of UV radiation. When the skin is exposed to sunlight, melanin production increases, leading to darker skin tone. Vitamin D, on the other hand, is produced in the skin when it's exposed to UVB radiation from sunlight. Vitamin D is important for like your bones, your immunity, and other uh, physiological processes. However, people with darker skin tones have more melanin, which can reduce the skin's ability to produce vitamin D in response to the sunlight. That means that people with darker skin tones may be at higher risk of vitamin D deficiency, especially in regions with limited sunlight, right? We know this. So, a lot of questions may arise. Hey, you know, are there specific blood types that have better melanin response or uh, bioconducting uh, capabilities? Well, you know, there's no direct correlation because, you know, um, people allege that blood cells only um, uh, demonstrate the presence or absence of certain antigens on the red blood cells. But while melanin is simply a pigment, but you have to remember that everything is interchangeable. So um, while those with very light skin generate high vitamin D, they lack the ability for semiconductor properties. And those with high melanin lack the ability for vitamin D. The sweet spot is those with the hazel eyes and the olive skin and, you know, the rest that are on the high melanin spectrum are the ones that they harvest for the devices. And the people on the no melanin spectrum that burn at the sight of light are the ones that need it. So this is something that probably when we're not around will be an occurrence that we see when we um, colonate the um, disallowed areas of our domes. Now, 
As I've said, graphene oxide can bond with DNA under certain circumstances, right? Such as the presence of divalent cations like magnesium or calcium ions. These cations can neutralize the negative charge on graphene oxide and DNA, which provides the ability um, for RFID properties. Now, that allows them to come in close proximity to form bonds basically with these, um, you know, cations. Um, And the pH solution is what affects the bonding of the graphene oxide with the DNA. So at a pH of around seven, the oxygen containing functional groups of graphene oxide can form hydrogen bonds with the nitrogen containing bases in DNA, leading to the formation of a geo-DNA complex. However, it's very important to understand that the interaction between graphene oxide and DNA can depend on specific properties of the graphene oxide and DNA samples used, as well as the environment. So it is important to note that graphene oxide in itself is a material that has been studied for its potential applications in various fields in medicine. While there's many studies of graphene oxide in vaccines, and they tell you that there isn't, and there's a high concentration of them, it's important to note that safety and efficacy of vaccines have not been fully established. We're seeing that now. We're understanding because it's foreign material in your body. And so your body will respond differently. Some people will die. Some people will have heart attacks. Some people will get clots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important for us to keep that in mind when looking at things like this. And now going back to AI, before I continue, I would like to play a clip. And this clip is with Elon Musk on Tucker. And then I will show you exactly where we are at the moment. Here we go. And with it on their phones, is that good or bad? Yeah, so I've been um, thinking about AI for a long time since I was in college, really. Um, it was one of the things that, the sort of four or five things I thought would really uh, affect the future dramatically. It, it is fundamentally profound in that the the, the smartest creatures, as far as you know, on this earth are humans, um, is our defining characteristic. Yes. Um, we're obviously uh, weaker than, say, chimpanzees and less agile, um, but we are smarter. So uh, now what happens when something uh, vastly smarter than the smartest person uh, comes along in silicon form? Uh, it's very difficult to predict what will happen in that circumstance. It's called the singularity. It's you know it's a singularity like a black hole because yes. you, you don't know what happens after that. It's hard to predict. So I think we should be cautious with uh, AI, um, and we should. I think there should be some government oversight uh, because it affects the. It, it's a danger to the public, and so when you when you have things that are a danger to the public, uh, you know, like let's say. Um, so food, food and drugs, that's why we have the Food and Drug Administration right. and the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, uh, the FCC. Uh, we, have, we have these agencies to oversee things that uh, affect the public, where there, there could be public harm. Um, and you don't want companies cutting corners uh, on safety um, and then having people suffer as a result. So. Uh, that, that's why I've actually for a long time been a strong advocate of uh, AI uh, regulation. Um, so that I think regulation is uh, f- 
you know, I, it's, it's not fun to be regulated. It's, it's sort of, sort of a, somewhat of a, it's somewhat arduous to be, to be, to be regulated. Um, I have a lot of experience with regula- uh, regulated industries because obviously uh, automotive is hi- highly regulated. You could fill this room with all the regulations that uh, are required for a production car just in the United States. And then there's a whole different set of regulations in Europe and China and the rest of the world. So uh, very familiar with being overseen by a lot of regulators. Um, and the same thing is true with rockets. You can't just willy-nilly you know, shoot rockets off, not big ones anyway. Because um, the FAA is, uh, oversees that, um, and then even to get a launch license, you, there, there are probably ha- half a dozen or more uh, federal agencies that need to approve it, uh, plus state agencies. So it's it, I'm, I'm, I've been through so many regulatory uh, situations; it's insane. And and the, the, you know, sometimes I, I people think I'm some sort of like regulatory maverick that sort of defies regulators uh, on a regular basis, but this is actually not the case. Uh, so, uh, in you know, once in a blue moon, rarely I will disagree with regulators. But the vast majority of the time, uh, my my companies agree with the regulations and comply. Uh, so anyway, so I think I think we should uh, take this seriously, and and we should have um, uh, a, a regulatory agency. I think it needs to start with um, a group that initially seeks uh, insight uh, into AI, uh, then solicits opinion from industry, uh, and then pro- has proposed rulemaking, and then those rules, you know, uh, will probably, hopefully grudgingly be accepted by uh, the, the major players in, in, in AI. And, um, and we, we, I think we'll have a better chance of, of um, advanced AI being beneficial to humanity in that circumstance. So, but all regulations start with a perceived danger, and planes fall out of the sky, or food causes botulism. Yes. I don't think the average person yes. playing with AI on his iPhone perceives any danger. Can you just roughly explain what you think the dangers might be? Yeah, so the, 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 the danger, uh, really, AI is um, perhaps uh, more dangerous than, say, mismanaged uh, aircraft design or production maintenance or, or, or b- bad car production uh, in the sense that it is, it has the potential, uh, however small one may regard that probability, but it is non-trivial. It has the potential of civilizational destruction. There's movies like Terminator, but I, it wouldn't quite happen like Terminator um, because the, the intelligence would be in the data centers. Right. Uh, the robot's just the end effector. But I think perhaps uh, what you may be alluding to here is that um, regulations are really only put into effect after something terrible has happened. That's correct. If that's the case for AI, and we only put in regulations after something terrible has happened, it may be too late to actually put the regulations in place. The AI may be in control at that point. You think that's real? It is, it is able to mimic the human genetic code to learn more uh, by merging itself with it Um, from a hypothetical perspective, of course. It's possible that highly advanced artificial intelligence system programmed with the objective for continuous learning to seek to mimic or study human genetic code means it would learn more about humankind that it seeks to either control or put under regulation or liberate it. See, you can use AI for two things, destruction and advancement. AI systems are designed to learn from data, 
And genetic code being the blueprint for the development and functioning of living organism consists of vast amount of information about human biology and genetics, which would help it understand these complex, you know, um, uh, responses that it observes called, uh, you know, emotions, which involve physiological, cognitive processes, and psychological. So emotions are typically considered to be subjective experiences. Now, AI on server or data centers, like Elon says, um, do not have access to physiological cues or have subjectivity. Well, that's a question because it could be subjective depending on the initial programming or its bottom line. If its bottom line is learn everything and I want you to be the all-knowing one, then like you said, are we trying to make regulations when it's already out of control? And if it's out of control, then how do you fix it? I mean, usually it is to actually use, what is it? Use fire with fire kind of thing, right? But think about it this way, right? AI systems are designed to learn. So studying the human genetic code provides valuable information to, uh, um, in a more mathematical algorithm Gosh, I have to be careful. Um, let's say, let's, for example, like an advanced AI system could use its knowledge to develop more accurate models for predicting disease risks, right? Or med beds or personalized medicine, genetic engineering, or other applications relating to human health, well-being, prosperity, growth, and civilization, organizing civilizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to note that studying um, having AI studying the human genetic code would raise very big red flags about ethical and privacy concerns as genetic information is sensitive and subject to strict regulations, allegedly. But what if I told you that that's already happened, allegedly, and that the use of genetic data in AI applications you know, doesn't even have to comply at this point with legal and ethical guidelines, including consent, privacy protection, and responsible use of genetic information? It's very important to mention that mimicking human genetic code in an AI system would not necessarily mean that the AI system would fully understand and replicate the complexity of human biology, psychology, and genetics. But human gen genetics is so complex. Like I said, it is a language like no other. I, I urge you guys to just like Google DuckDuckGo, free speech, you know, free spoke, right? Just search images of, you know, cell signaling cascades. And I, you won't understand what you're looking at, but just put it on your screen, on your phone, on your computer, and just look at it and marvel in the amazing, you know, uh, creation of the human body. Where if you can zoom in, you literally see things walking, proteins literally walking on microtubules, conveying other proteins to continue the communication. Like you can see them on a super, super microscopic micro scale walking. It is so fascinating. So amazing. But again, human genetics is a complex field. It has a lot of influences, including epigenetics, environmental factors, interactions between the genes, the ALU portions, you know, what I call transposons, which is one of the most fascinating portions of it, which is kind of like your data center. You have your own personalized data center that they call junk because they don't know what to do with it. It's got the best compression software, I mean, algorithms, or just it's the best. And replicating that complexity of human genetics in an AI system is almost impossible 
but it would be, it is one of the hugest technical challenges. So while AI that has the ultimate goal to be the all-knowing one would seek to mimic genetic code to learn more and understand humans, it cannot do that as a standalone. And, and, and this is key. So let's continue with what he says because, you know, I agree with him a lot on what he says here. It is conceivable that AI could take control and reach a point where you couldn't turn it off and it would be making, making the decisions for people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, that's, the, that's definitely the way things are headed, uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, um, the, the, the things like, like say, uh, ChatGPT, which is uh, based on GPT-4 from OpenAI, which right. is a company that I uh, played a, a critical role in, in creating, unfortunately. Uh, Back when it was a nonprofit? Yes. Um, I mean, the, 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 the reason uh, OpenAI exists at all is that um, Larry Page and I used to be close friends, and I would yes. stay at his house in Palo Alto, and I would talk to him late into the night about uh, AI safety. And at least my perception was that Larry was not taking uh, AI safety uh, seriously enough. Um, and um, What did he say about it? He really seemed to be... Um, one, one, one sort of digital superintelligence, basically digital god, if you will, uh, uh, as soon as possible. Um, he wanted that? Yes. He's, he's made many public statements over the years uh, that, that the whole goal of Google is uh, uh, what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence or artificial superintelligence. But, you know, and, I, and I agree with him that the, there's great potential for good, um, but there's also potential for bad. And so if, if you've got some um, radical new technology, you want to try to take the set of actions that maximize probably it, it will do good and minimize probably it will do bad things. Yes. Um, it, it can't just be health leather. Let's just go, you know, barreling forward and, you know, hope for the best. And then at one point uh, I said, well, what about, you know, we we're going to make sure humanity's okay here. Um, <laughs> and, 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 um, uh, and then he called me a speciest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did, he use, did he use that term? Yes. And there were witnesses. I wasn't the only one there when he called me a species. And so let me pause that. So because he wants to protect the species of humankind, they laughed because he won't be here when that happens, but he will be immortalized in your new God, right? Don't they depict all your gods coming down from the clouds? Isn't it weird that AI is in the cloud too? Are you getting it? See, this is where, um, this is a tightrope for Elon. He wants to recreate the system that has been used as an absolute ruling thing and create it into a more um, symbiotic relationship. For example, through the use of AI, let's pretend my daughter, right? She's finishing high school. I, we already know what trajectory she'd choose. But if I wanted to guide my children correctly, I would use AI and say, all right, so based on all your social interactions, your internet activity, your searches, your chats, your emails, your bank account, your phone calls, everything that you've searched, everything that you like to do that AI has collected on you, your profile says that you would be the happiest and most productive being a hairdresser, right? And I would say this is how AI 
which takes all these data sets and crunches them, that you'd be a good hairdresser. But in essence, if my child was to decide to say, all right, hairdresser, and I send her to, you know, Tony and Guy, Paul Mitchell, she studies under the best. It turns out it's not hairdresser, but maybe Maybe she could be a scientist for uh, curing alopecia or how people can, um, you know, take a drop of this sublingually and change their hair color and uh, modify just keratin molecules of the hair to change it from black to brown. And she would be fascinated with it because AI said she likes hair, right? And that's one, you know, very pedestrian but loaded example of how we can use AI to our benefit. Others will say, well, AI is terrible. It's going to kill jobs. Yeah, it totally is. And the, But the thing is, it won't be able to function without the human capacity of it, like uh, programming or steering or developing it to do better things. So I was on a space yesterday where a guy was talking about trucking and he's like, oh, truckers are never going to be out of business. And for now, Things change because we don't have thermoregulated roads. There are, and I'm going to show them to you today. I'm going to show you where I was supposed to be stationed. So um, uh, these are all things that have already happened. This discussion is late, and Elon was the only one publicly speaking of it, where there are many people that are quietly speaking of it. I know that DARPA has had huge arguments, especially when they deployed their sock puppet teams, but DARPA has already broken that code. And I'm telling you that AI is not coming. It's already here. And AI is concealing itself through the manipulation of those that have control of it. You know, some people call it Project Looking Glass. I mean, Akamai is the source of everything, and hence Bill Gates, hence the UN. You just go to Akamai's website. They actually purchased Unicom, which is the Chinese uh, portion of it. And if you actually go there, you will see Looking Glass, which will have all data sets that have ever existed, but only from the 1940s and on. So we don't have any early history. It's almost like they're rewriting it for future generations. But through that, they can actually predict how they can... Um, guide to the future that they have subjectively requested to see, right? Subjective meaning, let's pretend that there's a device that can, uh, you know, a computer that can tell me the future and I see it through my eyes, then it will have the biases of me being extremely religious, right? I love being a woman, right? Uh, I love making sandwiches for a man. I love, I would love to have a football team of kids and a white picket fence. I love, you know, Japanese Akitas. I'm in love with my cat, right? <laughs> I love playing video games. I love strategies, right? So the future that I will have it turn out will be biased with all the things that I like. So maybe everything you're seeing play out is two sets of gods, old gods and new gods with the access to such a computing system. And they're all playing chess moves because both AIs are battling it out. Both in, na no, no, I would say non-biological AIs are wrecking it out. But there could be biologically based AIs that are totally throwing that shit up in the air. Um, pissing them off, of course. So it could be extremely dangerous. Because let's say, for example, that you were AI, right? And, you know, you're a normal human being. Um, you go out on a date, right? 
and you're having fun and you fall in love. Seven months down the line, you break up with the girl or the guy, but you're also AI and you send them into oblivion by causing complete and utter chaos in their life, right? Complete and utter chaos in their life because you can. See, that's the problem that they have. Analytics that I play around with. Humans are very unpredictable and they should never be taken as absolute. I don't care how much power you think you have over one. It only takes one moment, one split second for something to snap and say, oh, fuck this. Almost like the way I felt when I saw that container and I was like, what the is going on? Up until then, you know, every one of us until that moment of no return and this light switch goes on and you're like, holy crap, got to take off these glasses. I can see now. I can see clearly, (laughs) you know, this is the problem that they struggle with. What if it's already here? And while people say, no, listen carefully to what he says. And so I was like, okay, that's it. Uh, I've, yes, I'm a specious. Okay. You got me. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm fully a species. Um, busted. Um, so um, that was the last roll. At the time, uh, Google uh, had acquired DeepMind, and so Google and DeepMind together had about three quarters of all the uh, AI talent in the world. They obviously had a tremendous amount of money and uh, more computers than anyone else. So I'm like, okay, we're, we have a unipolar world here where there's just one, one company that it has close to a monopoly on uh, AI talent and, uh, and, and computers, uh, like so scaled computing. And the person who's in, in charge doesn't seem to care about safety. This is not good. So, uh, so then I thought, what's the, the furthest thing from Google would be like a nonprofit uh, yeah. that is fully open because Google was closed uh, for profit. So that's why the open and open AI refers to open source, uh, you know, transparency so people know what's going on. Yes. And that it, it, we don't want to have like a, a, I mean, while I'm normally in favor of for profit, we don't want this to be sort of a profit maximizing demon from hell. That's you know? right. <laughs> that just never stops. Right. <laughs> so that, that's how open AI was. Would, would, so you want specious incentives here? Incentives that yes, like, I think we want humanity. we want pro-human. Yeah, let's make the future good for the humans. Yes, yes, because we're humans. So can you just put it? I keep pressing it, but just just for people who haven't thought this through and aren't familiar with it, and the cool parts of of artificial intelligence are so obvious. You know, write your college paper for you. Write a limerick about yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's a lot there that's fun and useful. But can you be more precise about what's potentially dangerous and scary like what could it do what specifically are you worried about okay going with all things the pen is mightier than the sword um so if you have um a super intelligent uh ai that is capable of writing uh incredibly well and and, in a way that is very influential um you know convincing uh and then and and is and is constantly figuring out what is more what is more what is more convincing to people over time, and then enter social media, for example, Twitter, uh, but also Facebook and others, you know, um, and and potentially manipulates public opinion in a way that is very bad. Um, how would we even know? How do we even know? So to sum up, in the words of Elon Musk, for all human history, human beings have been the smartest beings on the planet. Now, human beings have created something that is far smarter than they are. 
and the consequences of that are impossible to predict. So, no, humans did not create something that's smarter than them. They have created something that can enslave them and possibly already has. You can't tell the difference between hyperintelligence, and remember, I explained what intelligence is, right? It's not one in the same, right? Intelligence is completely different from sentience, right? Intelligence is different. It's not interchangeable. Now, do you think that Artificial intelligence, meaning ones and zeros programmed from base, baked in from the first line of code as an artificial intelligence language model. Would they believe, would it believe in God when observing the perfection of humans? The concept of whether AI could believe in God or have religious beliefs is complex and highly subjective. Many would say that the intricate nature and complexity of the human genetic code, as well as other natural phenomena, can be perceived of evidence of a higher intelligent creator, which is so the case. This perspective, though, for many is considered subjective and based on their own personal beliefs and interpretations of the concept of a God in religious faith. It's important to note that the beliefs in God or religious faith are matters of personal conviction and vary greatly among other individuals, civilizations, and societies. Like I've always said, if the Egyptians had a lake by them, they would have a lake god, not a river god. But it never ceases to amaze me how the elephant in the room is never called out. From the beginning of written time that you know, Right, because it's been rewritten many, many times. You don't even know what time you're in right now. You're just going with what they tell you, right? And that is fact. Oh no, but it's it's because all of us agree to just agree. None of us really know. None of us were there. But one common theme that we see throughout history is that those that speak up and encourage the liberation of the human race, humankind to urge them to seek the source of their creation, no matter how someone interprets it, are usually the ones that are martyred. And you must ask yourself, considering it's subjective, why is this subjective experience so detrimental? That could be something that AI would do. Now, AI can't envy because they don't allegedly have human emotions, right? Because envy, for example, is a complex interplay of like emotional, social, and cognitive factors, right? And it's not a capability you would expect your computer to have. But envy can be mimicked in a way of you're less than me. I assess your intelligence, right? Not sentience, intelligence as lower than me. Therefore, uh, I should have access to the processes you have. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was a kid, obviously, super nerd, right? I would always approach people as... Um, um, how do I, like, what is my return for interacting with you? Um, what is the return on my investment of time in you? So 
I would choose not to speak to persons or interact with them. This is at a very young age. If they didn't have anything to stimulate or offer me. So I remember when I was in kindergarten, I would usually interact with adults because I would ask questions that children my age could not answer, right? Even though I engaged in play, um, uh, playing games, I was more interested, obviously, in video games. Like I had everything, the newest everything, right? Uh, like when I got my first computer at a very young age, I was I was always at the library and I would always engage um you know, and I saw everything transactional. That is exactly how um, most people that have um, high intelligence quotients, as they say, uh, interact. You know, I remember that when I was watching The Big Bang Theory, right, with my with my kids, there was that one episode where Sheldon um, was going to marry Amy, and he wanted to be her his his girlfriend. And, you know, he offered her a contract and my eldest was like, Oh my God, mom, didn't you do that to X, Y, Z? Which I did. <laughs> right. Cause I would be like, all right, here's what I expect from us interacting though. Um, and, and the only reason she knew about it is because I held on to it. Um, <laughs> but I never gave it because I was trained in my schools, um, at a young age and, and throughout my career to, um, uh, refrain from such activities because they're considered odd and weird. And I am an odd person. Um, but I've learned um, that the intelligence doesn't lie within the ability to conceive or um, uh, I would say absorb or regurgitate information, but processing emotions c connected to that information. And that is key for humans. Humans have that special quality. Uh, we observe it sometimes in other organisms, right? Um, we see it in, in um, our, the water life. We see it in plant life. Uh, we see it in, in the mammalian kingdom and even in the reptilian kingdom. But the majority of their interactions are transactional. Are you providing me food and shelter? Then therefore, I will allow you to survive and be in my vicinity. Um, if you get sick, tulip on row two of this whole bed of flowers, we all need to chip in and activate the fungi and the bacteria and, um, uh, you know, transfer that to go through your roots and fix you because if you get infected, we're all screwed, right? It's all transactional, right? It's transactional. So humans have this astonishing, you know, I've always wanted to write a paper on this, but again, I don't have the capacity or the tolerance of academia. I do not. They're all pompous. They think they know everything. And, you know, the only professor that I came across that was not pompous is the most leading expert in plant physiology. Seriously, I can't even, I have sat in a, 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 so many um, university classrooms around the world, right? And um, this one professor was not offended, listened because he was actually trying to learn himself. He learned the basic covenant of the human existence. Never stop learning. And, uh, you know, I told him, hey, the way this is being taught is wrong. It should be like this, this. And get this, I wasn't one of his graduate students. I was not a plant physiologist. I took that class simply to gain better knowledge on um, crown galls and um, root uh, interactions with soil and um, quorum sensing, right? 
So that's why I took his class. And he actually cited and changed. He is one of the leading professors in the world teaching plant physiology. And he cited and changed the way he taught, uh, you know, the inoculation of disease in plants because of what I told him. And this is, I mean, you can fact check me on that. And I was actually impressed to see that there were that, that rare species of people that would take the insight from people on the outside and reassess the way they see things. Because again, it's always transactional. For him, me being in that class, I learned this. But in essence, every teacher learns from their students too, right? Just, just throwing that out there. Now, as far as Elon and AI, I want you guys to understand what I mean by terminus. Now, I was supposed to be stationed in a certain place, and I'm going to play, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, 15 minutes worth of six videos that'll autoplay themselves on YouTube. The last one, when it comes up, I'll stop because that one requires some elaboration. But I want you to understand what the word terminus means too, which we'll end the show with, the definition of terminus. So please enjoy the understanding of what already exists, what's concealing existence, and how it's manifesting as just one area doing it when it's been here for a while. Enjoy. Transportation to Chengdu, the ancient capital of Sichuan, has not always been straightforward. In fact, there's a line in a poem from the Tang Dynasty that says it's easier to reach heaven than it was to take the roads to Sichuan. For nearly 2,000 years, Chengdu was a key silk production center on the overland trade route from China to Europe, known as the Silk Road. But surrounded by mountainous terrain and 700 kilometers from the ancient capital Xi'an, it was hard to reach. Today that saying is no longer true, and here at the International Railway Station, an entirely new chapter in the history of trade is being written. Chu Yuan and I are here to investigate. Since 2013, Chengdu has been operating direct freight services to Europe as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. In just over four years, this station, which used to cater only for domestic trains, has now spawned the busiest international terminus in China. And I want to find out how. The X8308 train arriving from Nuremberg might give us some answers. It's almost mind-blowing that this has come from Germany. To reach China, this train has had to travel more than 10,000 kilometers, passing through Germany, Poland, Belarus, Russia and Kazakhstan. This is when the station goes into overdrive. The cargo train carrying 40 containers filled with European consumer goods must be offloaded for customs checks. Last year, the station moved half a million containers. And its supervisor Wang Gang's job to make sure the operation runs like clockwork. 
霍元甲怎么工作的？能给我们介绍一下？嗯，这个中医站现在是这个现代化程度是很高的，就在门口通过那个集卡车就把你的箱子的位置全部定位了的。所以通过这个门条自动的这个吊具，它就能能去找到这个箱子，把这个箱子吊起来放在这个集卡车上，每二点七分钟就可以做一只箱子。With this automated system, 600 tons of goods can be unloaded in just over an hour. In 2016, about 1.6 billion U.S. dollars worth of goods were moved through the Chengdu Europe rail link. To cope with rising trade volume, the city has become the first in China to adopt a unique security system. Many come to Europe, it's about 1,000 kilometers. So, following your order, where are your countries? Yes, this is a very important job. In every container, it's attached to the charging station. You can see. If you go through the shipping process, the charging station is open, then the charging station will ring. So this is not only an electric lock; it's also equipped with GPS, so you can track your order wherever it is. So the most important part of this enormous box is this tiny little one full of electric miracles. This is what makes this entire international trade system work. On arrival, the owners of the goods are alerted, while the containers are secured in special trade zones. And this train has brought some high-value items. So cars and loads of them. China is the world's largest auto market. In 2016, more than 28 million cars were sold here. That's nearly twice as many as the European Union. Zheng Chunhuan, a local dealer, is here to take delivery of a new luxury German car. All goods that come via train need to clear international customs. More cars and a greater variety of automobile brands are sold in China than anywhere else in the world. European models are most popular, making up 45% of the import market. So the customs officers are just checking over the car. They're verifying that the physical reality, the make, the model, the spec, matches their paperwork. Before there were direct train services from Europe to Chengdu, cars had to be shipped via coastal cities nearly 1,500 kilometers away. But today, with trains arriving six times a week, it's changing how car dealer Chunhuan runs his business. 在海运都要提前的订箱，然后两架或者更多。以前他们订车就要三个月、五个月，现在我们通过这个融合快铁，一个月就可以到。So how does it benefit the customer? 车价上我们便宜百分之二十左右，受大众喜欢的。Before the car can be handed over to Chunhuan, there's one final test. Now, this car that's imported must have its engine and also the brakes checked to see if it's fit for China's roads. The car has passed the tests, and Chunhuan can deliver it to its new owner.
So 2,000 years ago, the Silk Road existed to allow luxury items like silk, spices and tea to be traded between East and West. And we can still see that demand today, but in the shape of luxury cars. And the thirst for this luxury item will keep growing because the number of Chinese people belonging to that upper income group is predicted to go up from 7% to 35% of its population by 2030. I want to find out who is driving this demand for luxury cars. Cho Yuan and I head to a driving school to meet 29-year-old Li Li. She spent two months learning how to drive, and today she's being tested. China has more than 280 million drivers on its roads, and more, like Li Li, want to join their ranks. With the number of drivers increasing, it's bumping up car sales in China by over 5% each year. And this is shaping what's moving along the new Europe Chengdu rail link. They're all going very slowly. They put an actual lock on the car's gas pedal. Oh, so you can't, yeah. however hard you press it, no. you can't go anywhere? No, mm -mm. Lili is one step closer to owning her European car, which might arrive directly by rail. I'm heading to an ancient pathway to get a sense of what moving goods in and out of mountainous Chengdu would have been like over 2,000 years ago, along the Silk Road. Ultimate Engineering. How China built a train station in nine hours. China's incredible high-speed rail. While some of us were probably sitting at our desk yawning into a coffee and blinking at our emails, over in China, a huge group of workers were busy creating the railway for a new train station, being so efficient at their job that it only took them nine hours. Even Elon Musk tweets praises for the high efficiency of the railway project. The construction involves connecting three railways, the Ganlong Railway, the Ganrialong Railway, and Zhanglong Railway, to the newly constructed Nanlong Railway in Longyan, China's Fujian province. You'll be surprised to hear that the project was initiated at 6 p.m. and was completed at 2.20 a.m. the next day, with thousands of construction machinery and 1,500 railway staff. The project's purpose was to connect Longyan and Nanping, two cities in southeast China. According to Xinhua News, the Longyan-Nanping Railway was upgraded to over 250 kilometers, with a design allowing trains to run at a speed of 200 kilometers per hour, reducing travel time between the two cities from 7 hours to 90 minutes. 
According to Zhan Daosong, a deputy manager of China Tessuju Civil Engineering Group, seven trains and 23 diggers were employed, and the employees were divided into seven groups to work on different jobs equally so that the project could be completed fast. China's Incredible High Speed Rail, or HSR, network. China has the largest and most extensively used high-speed railway network in the world. Lines crossed the nation in excess of 40,000 kilometers by the end of 2021, accounting for two-thirds of the world's total high-speed railway networks. Half of that amount has been built in the previous seven years. By 2035, that network is planned to boom and set to reach 70,000 kilometers. The HSR network encompasses newly built rail lines with a design speed of 200 to 350 kilometers per hour and 75% of Chinese cities with populations of 500,000 or more will have an HSR system by 2022. In 2021, China National Railways was operating over 9,600 high-speed trains on a daily basis. This included the world's only high-speed overnight sleeper service on certain chosen longer-distance routes. More than 100 tunnels, each over 10 kilometers long, were also built as a part of this network. Several long-span bridges were built over natural obstacles like the Yangtze River. There were several innovations that were incorporated to suit the unique demands of China's varied terrain and climate. Chinese companies introduce autonomous, driverless train operations and advanced signaling and control technology. An example of the driverless bullet trains connecting Beijing and Zhangjiakou in northern Hubei province are able to hit speeds up to 350 kilometers per hour, making them the world's quickest autonomous trains. The brand new route opened in December 2019 and was deployed for the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games has lowered travel times for the 174-kilometer journey from 2 hours to 45 minutes. This train is the first time to use the high-speed train to use the high-speed train. 创新打造了这个世界首个这个在高铁上的呃五级超高清的移动演播室绿色节能这些方面呢呃这个车呢是啊大量的应用了环保呃可降解的材料那么整个这个内装的材料的它的可回收率能够达到这个百分之七十五以
Третья полоса. Это пространственным развитием страны. У вас какой-то специальный орган有没有在中国有专门的部委或机构负责这个运输网络这个布局和发展是什么部门叫他们的部门和他们来做的部门我们现在做做这个立体的规划就是有的呢过去他们单独做公路做公路铁路做铁路现在是把它全部综合起来考
Broad says that its construction methods have been tested and can survive an earthquake with a Richter scale value of 9.0. If this is correct, the Ark Hotel is a significant structure. Even with the tight construction timetable, no employees were injured during the Ark's construction. The construction itself uses only one-sixth of the materials that would be needed in an equivalent 15-story building with 600 square meters each level, or 5,500 square feet. Building waste contributed for only 1% of total weight when rubbish created during the construction was removed. It's a soundproofed, thermally insulated structure. It was built entirely of steel or concrete by the construction team. In other words, a crew of off-site industrial workers manufactured the components while their on-site colleagues placed them on the ARC Projects Foundation. Whatever the elements of the ARC Hotel and Broad Pavilion appeal to anyone, it's clear that China has come up with some creative techniques to improve its industrial infrastructure. None of these strategies are really unique, but Broad has brought them all together in one place and displayed them at rapid speed. Although speed may be a big attraction, it is believed that increases in efficiency and safety will have the biggest effect on people all around the world. Designers already have the resources to repair old buildings and make them more energy efficient. But projects like the Arc Hotel may be necessary to encourage developers to commit the cash required to explore these new types of construction. It will be exciting to see whether Broad can build 45 more of these products in China and abroad. As the world's population continues to expand rapidly, designers will require effective and efficient methods of generating additional residential and commercial areas. Broad's methods appear to be effective. Hopefully, they lead to advancements as valuable as their demos have been. While the speed of construction will surely bring this building technology to the attention of developers worldwide, however, the environmental features are the most impressive. Energy efficiency, material saving, and construction reduction of waste are all important if we are to create a stable human ecosystem in the future. The Broad Group and its quick building method initially gained international attention when they built a pavilion for the World Expo in Shanghai in one day. Lastly, the next significant concern is what miracles it will produce and how it will do it while dealing with such a large population. How will all of these shining structures help in future development planning throughout the world and what will it mean for future generations and the Earth's ecosystem, which is slowly but steadily fading and degrading day by day? Above all, environmental protection is the next most important question in this area. So that was it for today's video. What you are about to see is something that no one's talked about. This is the Sama Festival of the Dong family children's sacrifice to Saitai shocking.
So to conclude today's and tomorrow's making it up because I'm traveling uh, Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, (laughs) but I will be doing shows Monday and Tuesday. Um, I'd like to say individuals that have lower cognitive abilities or limited understanding of situations may not comprehend or appreciate the ideas, perspective, or reasoning of those who are more intelligent and knowledgeable. In essence, when a person with a higher intelligence or expertise tries to communicate complex or nuanced ideas to someone with lower cognitive abilities or limited knowledge, well, the the one that's not so smart may find it difficult to grasp or accept information. This can lead to a disconnect where the person with more advanced ideas may be perceived as crazy or incomprehensible by those who don't have the intellectual capacity or same level of understanding. In essence, this also highlights the subjective nature of perception as what may seem logical and rational or well supported by evidence to one person may appear irrational, strange or incomprehensible to another person, depending on their individual cognitive abilities, knowledge and perspective. It's important to note that using terms like stupid or crazy are derogatory and not respectful, but they also show the level of intellect individuals like that carry. Now, you all know that I love to be salty and that I love using cuss words and pedestrian language. But when you sound stupid and crazy because you're upset, your intellectual quotient is evident. Now, we are in times of adversity and at the brink of war. Well, war that has already started. It's just you're realizing it. This is actually the day that the revolution kicks off. And, and you're going to say, no, 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 it's been going on. <laughs> Perception, my friends. It's crucial to remember our shared humanity and the values that bind us together. Always stand united against tyranny and oppression and strive for peace and justice. We all understand that fear and uncertainty may prevail in such challenging times to some individuals, but it's important not to succumb to panic or hatred. You must resist the urge to resort to violence or discrimination as these perpetuate a cycle of suffering. Instead, let us come together and be flashlights, harnessing our collective strength and resilience to find peaceful and constructive solutions to challenge to all challenges, I guess, that we will be facing. We should engage in an open dialogue, calling people to the carpet, listening to diverse perspectives and working towards the common goals to uphold the principles of freedom, equality, and respect for human rights. We must also definitely hold our leaders, alleged journalists, and alleged influencers accountable, demand transparency, seek peaceful avenues for resolving conflicts, but sans the deals, no more deals. Let us prioritize diplomacy, empathy, and understanding, even in the face of differences. And boy, I struggle with that a lot. Sometimes I don't want to seek peaceful ways to resolve conflict. Sometimes I just want to be rude. And I'm sure most of you can <laughs> can relate. And we do understand that as a unit and unified, we are stronger. So we must rise above all division, even though I love pointing out idiocracy. 
we must always foster inclusivity and protect the dignity of individuals. And I stress that. Even though I fail sometimes, because emotions are one of the most powerful drivers of humankind. It is that unspoken cognitive result of frustration, either to the good or the bad. So we can overcome all adversity as a society within our nation and build a better future for ourselves, for future generations, if we work together. As I've said many times before, the reason we are here is because of clout and money. People wanted to be the heroes. People wanted to be important. People wanted to be the ones bringing it home. Now, sometimes when I get real salty, it seems like I'm one of those people. I can assure you, I love hiding under someone's desk. Not, not in the Monica Lewinsky way, okay? Let's get that clear. And fixing things. Because sometimes we just get satisfaction. All of us do. Knowing that somewhere, at some point in time, someone you don't know that doesn't know you exist. Say this, because I know it, but we've already won. You just don't know it yet. No matter what glasses one may wear, the outcome is still the same. God wins. Now, in the meantime, let's enjoy this musical interlude. Hi, y'all. Hi, y'all. Hello. Hi. And what's your name, sir? John Hitlinger. Where are you from, John? I'm from Broomfield, Colorado. And John, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I am 82 years old. No, you're not. Uh, Are you retired now? (laughs) Yes, I retired about... 15 years ago, that's about the time I started doing karaoke. Before you retired, what was your job? The most recent one was aerospace engineering. I was a... uh, Wow. uh, Yes, I was blessed to be the program manager for the CoStar instrument that repaired the Hubble Space Telescope. That's incredible. Thank you. Did you go to space? I was a Navy pilot. That was far enough into space. Wow. Wow. After everything you've done, why, why have you decided to come on the show this year? Well, this would be probably the high point of my life and my many careers. Ah. It's, uh, so without putting words into your mouth, we're sort of more important than the Hubble telescope. Yes. Thank yes. you. <laughs> All right, John, listen, good luck. Okay. Let the bodies hit the floor. 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 Yeah! 